I want to leave a lasting impression that, that stands the test of time for future generations in whitefish. Welcome to Friends of Build Magazine. I'm your host, Ted Bainbridge. I've been traveling the world and working in publications for 30 years. In 2016, we launched our first issue of Build Magazine, a publication dedicated to high-end home construction, renovation, and the innovative experts that make this possible. This podcast was created to have some fun and explore those who have taken on the challenge of building luxury homes in demanding locations. From navigating logistics and construction to excavating the earth, we want to learn more about these people and how their projects became cover-worthy. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. My guest today is Eric Payne, founder of New West Builders and Payne Coal Architectures, architectural firm in Whitefish, Montana. Eric, I've known for, I want to say, seven years, although I knew of you before then, and you're transitioning from being a tech founder and got nailed with the bubble of 2000, and now you've moved to Montana 20, almost 25 years ago, huh? Yep, sure was. And uh, you started a building company and you never looked back. So thanks for being on Friends of Build Magazine today. And dude, as I'm reading the notes, it is so ironic because I had a chat with our leadership team this morning, Dan being one of them. And at like one o'clock in the morning, I'm thinking, what am I going to say to these guys? How am I going to inspire them? And I started thinking about IBM literally out of nowhere. And I read about your dad and I had... I had uh, somebody in our office, I said, hey, would you Google IBM and tell me if they're still around, what they're doing? Well, so many companies have that were iconic 40 years ago when I was a kid are gone. And sure enough, IBM, all they did was a transition from B2C to B2B. And Watson's still around, but you don't see them anywhere anymore because they're just dealing with corporate clients. And it's funny, your dad worked for them. Yeah, they were. I mean, they've always been a, a huge player in the tech industry, but the, now they're kind of behind the scenes. You don't know that they're there, but they're taking care of you know the majority of Fortune 100 companies on the on the really high end tech side. But yeah, he started with them in the early 60s, all the way through the very beginning of the computer age. So I grew up in that from just the littlest kid. I remember that, and they've always loved technology. But like you mentioned, the 2000, we had a pretty large tech company on the East Coast, mostly medical and education, some on the bigger stuff. And the tech industry changed dramatically. You had to transition. Microsoft came along, got super strong. Apple came back. Windows NT, like, changed everything for the networking world. And that's when I shifted over and just went out and, like, I'm going to build a house and see how it goes and, and sell it and as a spec. Next thing you know... I've got three or four. Next thing you know, I got 30 of them. This was in, in Maryland. Uh, and then. Oh, this I, is before you moved to Whitefish? Yeah. So we started up there and then we transitioned over to Whitefish, really in the exact same manner. I said, I'm going to build a, two specs together in Whitefish and got those going. And that led from one to the next to the next. So now I'd say, you know, we're probably one of the largest re- in this region. We've built everything from. A, a commercial remodel in downtown at a Fleur Bake Shop, which is would fit in any of these resort uh, towns in the West, to 
some of the largest homes in in this region for sure and, and would be uh, you know one of the more sizable ones in Park City or anywhere else. Okay, so you're talking about scaling businesses, and obviously that's been in your DNA since you were probably a kid, right? For sure. So what did you learn? I want to kind of stay on the IBM and your dad. You grew up on a dairy farm and in Maryland, and your dad's an executive for IBM. How does that correlate? <laughs> well, so he loved he loved his, his job. He loved the tech sector. He loved driving down to Gaithersburg, Maryland, right outside of D.C. every day and being part of this growth of the entire tech industry as it evolved. But he also loved raising his family on a farm and instilling those work ethics. And we went to a really small little private school. So he was very concerned about you know those instilling those ethics and morals in us. But... He, he loved them both. And I think, you know, what I, what, when he retired and we started our own company, we, I had the exact same hunger as he did that he was taught by IBM. IBM owned the industry. If you're, you know, kids today, the younger industry probably hasn't heard of IBM very much. But in those days, the oh, 60s, dude, they were everything. They owned it. Like they were number one. They were like Apple today. So from a comparison percentage standpoint, probably even more so. And they were not really knocked off of that high horse until like Dell came along. And Dell's like rocked their, the computer PC industry for them. But as they, as you, as you explained earlier, they just simply adapted. Their margins now, if you, if you look at their, their financials, their margins now are probably five times higher margins than they were in their heyday in the early 90s, in, volume wise. So I think you know that's a that was a great lesson to learn from a, a, a mammoth Goliath company in their sector to what we we need to learn from that too. So what does it mean to be an early adapter? Because obviously your dad was one, and I remember I'm sixty. I don't know. I think you're probably what fifty two or something like that. Yeah, fifty four. Yeah. So so I remember uh, going to college and having to computer program in Fortran, which is the dark ages compared to today. And it was hard to figure out, you know, you'd have these chip cards and I mean, it was, or punch cards and it was awkward at best, but being an early adapter goes a lifetime because there's always stuff that's changing and we're going to get into your 3d modeling and how cool that stuff is. But what does that mean as far as your, how, how you think of problems? I definitely am. I think, you know, one thing that's a great point, And I think, you know, this millennial age group is very good at, at looking at problems, trying to simplify them because they've grown up with technology. That's probably maybe a little bit of the reason why I look at things the way I look at them in all aspects of this sector. And it doesn't matter what industry it is. I can always I always try to look through it with a vision of how can we do this better through using technology and processes. And it's the exact same tools I've applied to everything I've ever done is there's got to be a better way to do this. Like, the you know, whether it was the gun industry and, and helping create a company here locally, design a, a building for them and, and build the, the uh, factory for them and help integrate that kind of as a, as a side venture. It's a, it was an industry that hadn't been changed in 70 years. How do we bring technology into that? How do we improve the process? The building industry 
goes back to hundreds and hundreds of years ago in Europe, where we're still, you know, a lot of what America architecture and construction methods are dri- were driven from those early founders, right? Long before America existed. They haven't changed all that much. Now, the process that we're proposing and what we're, what we're living by is a, is a radical change. Like, it, it changes everything. Not everyone can adapt to that. I love moving as fast as we can go, constantly trying to improve. And I always look at it from the probably the exact same angle big corporate companies look at it, is if we can use the exact same number of people to do four times more volume than what our competitor is doing, we're winning. Obviously, we got to be doing something right, and we got to be winning. When we when we go look at other other partners that we're working with on the design side, we are here for one reason: it's to make you better. It's not saying we're 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 better architects and we're smarter than everybody that we're competing with on the architecture side. We just think our process is a lot better. And we we've proven it on the build side because we are going three to, on the construction side. We can do three to four more, three to four times more construction with the same number of people because we have made the process so much simpler. How do you not get sidetracked by all of the new technology and gadgets? And how do you how are you able to disseminate what is a value and what is a rabbit hole? I'd say, I mean, I probably, I look at things probably a little more pessimistically than what <laughs> someone younger than me, like 20 years younger than me, probably looks at new technology. Although I love technology and I love advances, I don't want to be the first one to implement things in our, in our process. So it's kind of a fine line. We turn down a lot of the newer technology stuff for in the field because I don't feel like the field is ready to adapt as quick as the, the group in the office is ready to adapt to new processes. And it, on the when, when we're wearing a design hat, I got to think about the guys that are building it. So it's a real catch twenty two for us. Is we got to be we got to be pushing the envelope, but we can never push too hard, or or we could end up having a, a wreck on in the field side of things. So. I do believe that we are, we're really balancing that right now. We're not pushing things where everybody's got to be walking around a job site with iPads in their hand, that they got to be logging into apps. Like we love that stuff and we, and we know it's coming, but where the, the industry is not there yet. The field crews are not there yet. So it's interesting. You mentioned that I was in a, I was in a spec house in Paradise Valley, uh, Two months ago, and I see these barcodes all over on every every sheet of paper is is nailed or stapled. You're, you're looking at gel. There's obviously something yeah. funny about this. Talking about this, and and I looked at them. And T Mac is is the builder, and this house is spectacular. I mean, it's in Paradise Valley, so enough said. But right. Eric, it was so much more efficient for his crew to just take their phone, scan it. And now you can look up all the things, albeit they still have the paper plans because they need the scale to be able to look at things where your iPad or your cell phone isn't isn't that, it's not a perfect situation. But it was just interesting to see the balancing act between the two. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I'm, I'm a believer in the, in the barcode scanning in the job site. And we're, we're implementing that by the room. I think the number one tool that we found, and you brought it up a little bit ago, 
is the renders. Like it's a game changer and there's, we're not the only people doing renders out there. So it's not just renders, but it's the way we implement renders and at what stage do we implement them compared to everybody else? I think is radically different, but I definitely believe the number one tool in the field that we have found for the, to bring these projects together with the least confusion, the least mistakes is renders is get the visual photograph quality, finish room details, fireplaces, bathrooms, everything as detailed as you can get it in front of everyone from day one and constantly be driving that into their brain. And that way the guys that are in the field running the job to the laborer who's cleaning up knows how this is going to end up and they all have the ultimate goal in, in front of them at all times. Okay, so you talk about rendering, and my partner up in Whitefish, who's a buddy of yours, Dan, uh, was talking to me about the fact that you and your partner can go into a onto a site and within a few hours have very clear renderings of what the building that should be put on that site is going to be should look like. How do you do it that fast? So, so the the process that we use is basically uh, Nick and I. We'll, we'll show up at a job site or at a parcel, meet a client. Sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. Now COVID's calming down. Clients are here a lot more than they used to be on at the site. But we want to meet them there. We want to kind of hear from them a vision of what they see. Not, we don't let that drive what we're doing, but there's obviously goals that they have in their with their home that we want to achieve. And then usually rapidly, we're, ha we're showing them an artist sketch. And those sketches are what drives the ultimate design. T typically, I would say 90% of our projects, the ultimate finished photographic level render of the exterior of the home and the elevations and the flyovers are so close to those original sketches, it's uncanny. And, and that really, I think, is a, a major testament of, of the process. But I think the, the other part of it is and what you just said there is the speed and how rapid we do this. That's the key to everything is the majority of our competitors, while they're great and we will not take anything away from them, and we're certainly not sitting here saying we're better than some of the greatest architects in the country, we give them kudos. They're great at what they do, but so was IBM. Yeah. And we're, we're, we believe the process that we have is far superior one is speed. The whole process is driven around the greatest creative minds in the West. But how do we scale this? How do we do far more with far less people? It's a fight we all have in every single industry in, in this in the West is where do we find enough people to do all this work? We're we're fixing that problem in our process. So you being a builder first and an architect second gives you a unique perspective on how to create something and push the envelope like you were mentioning. I've talked to so many builders and they go, oh, the architect was incredible, came up with these great ideas, unbuildable, right? Right. I, we've all heard it a thousand times, right? We've, I've been so blessed and so lucky to have been able to build what we've built. Like, I, I just, I can't even begin to tell you, like the projects that we built in Whitefish specifically, it's my backyard. I live here. My office is 100 Central Avenue. Like, they could never have a greater address yeah. than 100 Central Avenue for the build side. 
my daughter goes to school a half a block away from me. My my world is right here. I want to leave a lasting impression that that stands the test of time for future generations in whitefish on the build side. So we've done incredible projects. The number one limiting factor and the number one point of frustration for us, and I would say 99 out of 100 great builders in America is the plans. Like, they're great, they're wonderful, but they don't have enough there. Like, we're, we're always asking for questions. RFI, RFI, RFI. This is the greatest architecture firms in America we've built for, and some of them will have hundreds of RFIs on them. We want to eliminate that. That's what we got to get rid of. We do not want a designer. Part of the second number one frustration for builders is the design side of things. The design side of things drives the build, too. So as much as you want a, an architect to move forward and get your set of plans so you can get this project going because the client wants it in two years, and you know if it goes the normal way, it's probably three-plus years. Yeah. Like, there's reasons that cause that, and they can all be fixed. That pe These people are accepting it is the norm. It does not need to be the norm. It's the norm because no one's tried to change it. So what we're doing is we're, we're recreating the norm. We're, we're streamlining that process where the design, the interior design, the exterior design are all part of it from the very beginning. All the renders and design of this project are all going simultaneously. They're not like, oh, let's build a structure and get the client to agree to these timber trusses and the roof lines and all. And then a year later, we'll bring the interior designer in. And then the interior designer hacks the house all up and recreates all types of different things in the house that didn't go with what the clients really wanted because the architect and the designer weren't speaking to each other yeah. until it was too late. And the one who pays the ultimate price is the owner, but the one who's the most frustrated is the builder. So that's where I've decided we're going to, we can only scale so large in this region on the build side. We have proven this is a dream for me. It is the greatest scenario I've ever had in my career is to be able to try to fix the problems that I've found on some of the greatest projects that have ever been built and figure out how to do them faster and better. Okay, so... You're from the East Coast. I've been up the Empire State Building several times because I grew up on the East Coast. You you know the museum on the 74th floor and that they built that thing in 1931 in 15 months. Eric, what you're talking about. And, dude, that building today is spectacular. Right. I mean, I haven't, I haven't been in, in that on that particular floor, but I've been in Empire State Building multiple times. And I mean, some of the architecture, even things in Montana that we demo and rebuild it, even Kalispell or Whitefish or, or Bozeman, you're tearing these things apart and you're like, these guys were way ahead of their time. Like, it's amazing what they did. I think, you know, the biggest problem is in the West, especially maybe not in the East Coast, is, is manpower. And manpower affects everything from the designer team to the architect team to the builder and everyone in the, in the in that process where that wasn't necessarily an impact in earlier decades but I mean we're we believe what the changes that we're implementing and that we're proposing to sh bring to builders and to the client ultimately is going to fix a lot of these problems and I believe it is a process that others will adapt to so so 
you mentioned being able to take what you've got and implement it anywhere, whether it be Tahoe, Park City, Jackson Hole, Newport Beach, anywhere. How do you scale it and staff it in those different places? Or do you do everything out of Whitefish? No, I mean, we're definitely open up. We have our majority of our staff is Missoula. And Missoula is a really great uh, regional location to hit almost anywhere in the West within a, a direct flight. And Kalispell's growing tremendously, the airport here, so we can do it too. But we will continue to expand locations. As you know, Park City, you mentioned, is one of our top market goals is to really uh, integrate more into the Park City market and in, in being able to take this architecture and adapt it. Like, you can't ask for a bigger radical change in design than Scottsdale, for instance, and Paradise Valley, which is one of my favorite places in the West and the Southwest. We are going, we will, we will be in that market. We will have an office located there. In the meantime, we are traveling back and forth and focusing Montana as our home base. But the radical change in architecture that's creative minds. That's what we do. We we love and embrace that, and we want to embrace the beauty of each region. The process, though, is the same, regardless of where we go. It could be Palm, Palm City or Palm Desert. It could be Scottsdale. It could be Florida. It could be anywhere. The process is going to stay identical. So what, other than your dad, who are some of your mentors growing up, and do you have any today that you learned from that kind of gives you a perspective on what you're doing because you are an innovator. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I, in early days, probably my, my working for IBM is a very incredibly structured company. Like everything is regimented. They had to wear a blue or a white button up shirt every day with blue or black slacks. Everything had to be on. Like, it's as structured as you can get. So I probably still do dress dress up because I always saw my dad dress up regardless if I'm on job sites or in the office. So that left a lasting impression. Work ethics, definitely for, for my dad. But out of during high school, I worked for a company out of Maryland who we would travel the train up to New York and work for insurance companies. And this guy's name was it was called Hafer Systems. So he would go in and taking old mainframes out of these insurance companies and move them over to PC-based networks. So I got to be part of that right in, during high school, going to the big city, this incredible pace here. I'm growing up on a little farm in Maryland in the middle of nowhere. And that this guy went 100 miles an hour. And I was 16 years old, right next to him, everything he did, learning from him. And before you know it, like I'm running a crew and I'm still in high school and we're up there ripping, you know, huge skyscraper infrastructure in these buildings out and implementing these systems. And we, in New York, and this a long time ago, so I can't get in trouble for it. And he can't either because he's long gone and retired. He's still alive. But New York in those days were uh, union and probably still is heavily unionized. Okay. So you weren't supposed to be in there unless you work for a union. So we would come in from Maryland. We would work all night if we had to. We had to be out of there before the day started so everybody could come back into their office and work. So we had really tight shifts. I learned so much from that. I learned the number one thing this guy taught me was whatever limits you have, throw them out because I'm going to teach you limits that you never thought you could do. And it is going to be work all night long and get this floor ready and get it ready for people to come sit at their desk tomorrow. And then we're going to go work in our office and get everything ready 
you get a couple hours sleep, and then we're going to do it again at 5 o'clock when everybody leaves the next floor. And it just taught me at the youngest age is to, to take that as a euphoric feeling and, like, this is a victory. It's not, this isn't a stressful strain on me. It's a victory. Like, I should feel euphoria from it. So I'm always trying to instill that on our teams, whether it was the build side or the design side, is we're always trying to push our limits. Like, push Come up with new methods. Take this as a, a challenge. We create how to do it better. That's a euphoric feeling. But in the meantime, like we got to go hard, harder than you ever thought you could do. And I, I do think you know part of no matter how process driven you are and how innovative you are, you still got to have more drive than everybody else that you're competing with. That's the only way you're going to truly win. Even if we had the greatest idea, that, as I believe we do. But we just wanted to go and implement it slowly. Someone else might beat us to the punch. We want to be the first ones there, and we're going to fight harder than anybody to get there. So your your work you work for a guy or one of your clients is an incredibly wealthy guy, and he's about your age, and he's got a monster house on Flathead Lake. What do you learn from him? Because this guy's done things over the top. What do you learn from him about a fun? Because even though you're that wealthy, you still want to have fun. And the other thing, Eric, is what do you learn from him as far as a reality check that most wealthy people that I know or super successful people, if you peel back and get to know them as people, they have the same problems that we do. And and they're just normal people that have done extremely well, have done extremely well for themselves. Yeah, I would, I'd agree so much with you. I mean, I've, again, been so blessed to work with so many different people across the different levels, you know, obviously some of them more successful than others, but if they were, if a client's working with us, they've probably been very successful at whatever they did. Yeah. And I've seen so many different personalities. Some are like relentless for the wrong reason, just relentless because they can't let go of, of little details. So the little details will drive them crazy. Where when I look at a bigger picture of, of specific clients, like you mentioned, I think they, they're constantly looking at the big picture for one. And they're, they're, they expect more from themselves and more from others, but they never expect more from someone else they don't expect from them that they've already expected from themselves. So it's it yeah I think there's some people that have you know reached tremendous levels of success and they've been they've done it by being able to delegate everything to others and then there's others that will work in the trenches as hard as everybody else that they expect those things from and that's what I've seen in and also just that hunger like one take a, a success that's a victory but it's a victory let's go get the next one. And that's exactly what we are always trying to do, where I think our industry is dominated by by limited goals. And most of the, you know, from a builder standpoint, a builder will find this is the max capacity that we have. It's six homes at any one time, or it's two homes a year, whatever that is. And that's the max. And because they're used to doing things the same way they've always done them, and they want to do them right. And that is a great, great goal to have. And it's a great limiting, limited goal. But if again, if we can prove to these people, like some of the great innovators that have come before, 
is we can change your whole way of thinking. That, I believe, is where the ultimate success comes from. And when it, when you do it that way, these guys that you mentioned, the, the wealthiest and the most successful, that's what they've done. They've just taken industries and they've taken sectors and whether it was technology or biomed or whatever it is, they've taken a new approach to it. They've created new processes that allow them to make outrageous margins that nobody had seen before in that particular sector. I just think it's fascinating because you grew up in a farm. Most of our clients, and one of the reasons I do this is the American dream, and people might get tired of me saying it, but it's so true. And I just think it's bigger than it's ever been today. You take these people that grew up in humble beginnings. Now, albeit your dad worked for a pretty incredible company, but still, what do you do with that? And how do you take it to your own next level, which obviously you've tapped into something pretty dynamic with what you're doing with this architectural firm and the the 3D modeling that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's a perfect combination. Like I said, I've done quite a few things. You know, I've had 100 employees working for me in a couple different businesses. Tech was one of them. And now, again, in construction, I've done it twice. And we're, we're building paying coal to, to get there rapidly and to be a, a dominant player in this industry. And we're using tech and technology and process improvements to do it. I, 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 the perfect marriage for me is of, of what we're doing is something I absolutely love. And you cannot get a better industry to be in because we get to create things that are incredible, like on Instagram, on Pinterest, on everything. What's the most searched thing of all the time? Luxury homes, luxury bathroom, luxury outdoor pools. People love this stuff. And it is, it's one of the most fun things we get to do in, in life is create a home that we love for our families. We get to be part of that. So there's really nothing other than maybe your marriage and your family that a person is going to be more passionate about. So now we get to jump into a sector and try to improve it. One of the very most important things that is in anyone's life, and that is their home. So we're constantly you know, using that as motivation, finding the, the happiness that we instill in a client in the very early, early days, and honestly, in the builder too, because they get to be part of this and they get to see it done in a totally different manner. But when you get to be on even a Zoom call with a client and within a, a very short period of time, days, and we're showing them photographs of a home that looks like someone is already living in it and it's all done on their lot and the awe that, they, that you can see in them, it is, there's nothing more rewarding than that. What's the difference, Eric, in, you mentioned a Zoom call, and we've all gotten used to Zoom over the last few years. What's the difference between dealing with clients electronically as opposed to when they're actually on their lot and you're going through things? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely wish I had Zoom stopped before COVID hit. It's been incredible for us. I, I mean, there's probably not a single factor that has changed our process as much as Zoom, like you could never talk people in. It's so difficult to talk a client into doing it before Zoom became part of everybody's lives, whether we liked it or not. I mean, there's a lot of people, and and I think it's that old school way of thinking of, oh, I like it the old fashioned way. I really like meeting people in person. That's, it's horribly limiting. Like we can't do near as much that way as we can with Zoom. I would like, I could do 10 Zoom calls a day, I can do one site visit. 
So it's not real hard to figure out. Zoom is everything, and everybody out there in every aspect of our industry has got to embrace it because it changes the way you do business. So you you touched on an iconic building in Whitefish, Casey's Bar and Grill, that you renovated or gutted. I'm not sure how you would describe it, but what pressure is is there on you when you've got an iconic building that's been sitting there for so long? It's just like the Northern, or it's just like um, what's the what's the bar or the uh, burger place across the, the street? The Bulldog. Bulldog. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got some iconic buildings in that town, and now you've been given the uh, the keys to renovate it or blow it up. There's got to be a ton of pressure on you got to make this special. Yeah, that I mean, probably nothing more, no more pressure that could be applied than that one because everyone knows the building. Everybody. If you live in Florida or you live in California, where if you've come to Whitefish, you've probably been in the Northern Casey's and the Bulldog, all three that you mentioned. The Casey's being the oldest building and the very first building ever built, it created Whitefish. It's built in 1905. And it, the railroad had it built to give their guys a place to sleep that were coming through here as they built this leg of the railroad from Columbia Falls to Whitefish. Was it a brothel when it started? Well, it wasn't when it started, but I think in the 30s, okay. there, there was a brothel in it, and that continued for a long several decades, I believe. It was two-story. So there was a lot of pressure on the original build, and we and this is a great example. And so I'll I'll, I'll dive into this a little bit. In 2011, it was determined let's tear the building down and build a new building because it was it had served its time. You can't do that. What's that? You can't tear it down. Well, it, it was deemed it, the upper level had been already shut down by the city as an inha- not inhabitable. And, they were, and the main building was unsavable. So it was completely torn down. There was no basement under it before. A basement was created, and then it went up. So it's basically five stories, including the basement, include, and that includes a rooftop bar. It was one of the greatest, 20-plus thousand square feet. No, no money spared in making it one of the greatest facilities and embracing its history is the cornerstone of Whitefish. It sits at 100, 101 Central Avenue, right on the corner. So it's highly visible and it is the earliest building here. They, The owner took that very seriously and said, I want to continue this history. And we did that. And we did it fast. And we did it in one year, design in less than a year with another firm. And then we, we built it. What I learned in that was one of the toughest projects we've ever done from a build standpoint and probably is a big factor in what always was in the back of my mind of how poorly this industry is dominated by a process that had not changed at all since America really started probably was a guy comes up with a set of plans, hands it to a builder, and then you figure out how to make it work. That's really what we do. Engineers are involved in the builder. But what we did on that project is like we do on a lot of our high-end projects is constantly having the architect in and out of the in, in and out of the, of the job say going through what do you want here what were you thinking here these plans are they're black and white so I don't, I don't the guys don't understand it what about this doesn't work the sizing doesn't fit this isn't going to work the walls don't tie in together just one thing after another there's probably a thousand RFIs on the on the Casey's rebuild 
and we pulled it off. But we pulled it off because we're helping to design the thing while we're building it. Like it wasn't, it didn't work. Was this the foundation of your architectural firm? No, this was another firm completely. No, no, no. But when you got, when you finished building Casey's, is this when you said, I've got to create a better process for this whole thing because it was a gong show? Yeah, I think that's really where, and, and we had other ones going that were similar to, it was just like everything was design build. I think that's where it really started in my mind is how can we do better at this? And we were helping the architect so much make this work on the plans, but we're the builder and we're not getting paid to do that. And it's making our life way more difficult. So it was always there, there, like there's got to be a way, but there was all, that was always the limiting factor that controlled our growth on the construction side of it was we can only build so many of these things because I got to have a, a scientist of a, a level intelligence on the guy who's running that job for me because he's got to help the architects make it all work. So that's what that was our, our limit. I believe that limits everybody in the build industry. When I met Nick, Nick Cole, and I cannot give Nick enough credit. I met him in 2017 on a job site in, on Flathead Lake. A, a client brought us together. He was out of Missoula. They had heard about him. They're like, hey, we want you to build the house. This guy is supposed to be really cool. Uh, with the technology he's using with renders, would you meet him? I met him. He's, he and I hit it off immediately. He goes, we all listen to the client. At that point, I'm usually listening to the client, and the architect's eyes are going like this, right? They're, We're going to create something so incredible here. Like you mentioned earlier, half time it's not buildable. Nick always had a little different approach. Like, I want to help. I want to work with you guys. Help us. Like, when you see, we'll send over a set of concepts to you. Take a look at them and tell us what your feedback is. Like, don't let us get too far. If you see something that's not going to, isn't right. And so we, I'm like, this is so unusual. This guy, he's so humble. He's so are incredibly talented, but he hasn't let it go to his head. And he's got, you know, three or four guys working for him at that point. And everyone had that same approach, same approach I have, like a little hum, have some humility and, and everyone's going to do better together. We got done that job and it was incredibly difficult. We, the client was totally trusted the team. It was the best experience I'd have in, had in my uh, building career. And as we were going over, through, I'm like... Over 20 some odd years, that was the best? Absolutely. The only one that was pure enjoyment during the working with the plans all the way through the build. The plans were so much better as they were coming out. They were so far ahead of us. And, and the renders were so helpful. All of our crews were like in shock. And so as Nick and I were, as that job was progressing over that first year, I was like, I told Nick, like, you got something here I've never seen before. Like you, your approach, the way you're, you're bringing these renders in is so early in the job set, in the job progress, how you're modeling everything. Like I've got to take plans that other, uh, some of the greatest architects in the state, if not the West give us, and I'm paying another guy to model them for us. Like they're so complex that even the, the trust companies are having a difficult time figuring out what they're producing because they're not very concise and they're not very well done because they're trying to rush what they can do. So if we're paying somebody to model them to make sure that they come out like the client wants them to. You're doing it all for us and you're doing it like that. How are you doing this? So one thing led to another. We did a, a, another little job together, a, a remodel on a commercial job in Whitefish. 
Then we did a bigger job, and I start seeing like this is getting better by the job. And our projects are really high end, complex, mega luxury. We are taking this to the next level. And we really started pushing he and I together the envelope and how quick can we get these renders out? These renders are changing everything. The faster we get these photographic level renders out to scale, which is something very different than our competitors do, it lets us drive the process so much quicker because the clients are immediately seeing, oh, I love that. Oh, I'm not so crazy about that. Now I don't have a set of plans. It took me a year to show a client renders that they decide that room isn't quite big. Yeah, it's not near as big as I thought it was going to be. Or, ah, I don't like how that roof line looks. If I'd have rendered it in the beginning, I wouldn't have wasted all your guys' time. We got rid of all that. So we're showing them renders with so quickly up front. And a lot of times we do it on purpose because the client does tell us, I got to have this roof line. I got to have this. This is my dream. And we'll render it. We'll show them two different versions of it. Well, we think they're going to like much better. And what they think they're going to like, the renders changed at all. So we start focusing on the renderings bringing in art, the guys that were, bet, they're not architects that are doing these renders, they're animators and they're graphic artists. So we're bringing in those guys, we're building a team around them, a whole separate department, and we still have the greatest architects in the country, bringing in structural engineering, bringing in all the designers, but the renders are the key. Like, let's, we're all visual. That, yeah. That's what makes us. Yeah. And the faster we can get those renders out and the more accurate those renders can be, the quicker the process moves along and the greater chance of success it has of being built. Okay, so I'm going to go back now that I know a little bit more. My brain is just going because I know some of the top architects in Montana, and they can be a little stubborn and stodgy. And how, like, a couple of things. First of all, can you take it to the architectural schools and get them to rethink their process? That's number one. Second thing is, we talk about scalability, and I keep thinking of whether it be accounting firms or or marketing companies like like uh, uh, Mark McCormick, who was a you know took Arnold Palmer and and uh, and Jack Nicholas and took them became a global brand with IMG Sports Marketing. Why can't you do the exact same thing with what you're doing? I mean, I think so much get- Eric to go around. Right. Well, and I think the uh, it definitely is. It takes some humility because these most of these firms that you, you know you mentioned some of the greatest firms in the West, they're very successful. So it, one thing a lot of times don't go hand in hand is great success and humility. So it's one thing I think we all need a little lesson of once in a while. Oh wait, was a big taught everyone a lot of humility, right? But the, the COVID especially has driven everybody beyond their limits on all levels you know everyone is is pushing as hard as they can i'm definitely not saying that some of the greatest architect firms in the west are not doing a spectacular job in doing renders and creating anything the difference i believe is the approach and the process of it so there everyone is still and it's it's a tough i don't know i think it'd take generations really to change sectors we've we've proven that other than probably the tech sector being changed in when Y2K hit and what Microsoft did to the tech sector. But that's that's a, a big difference in this. This is an ingrained process that the architect gets the first, they get employed first by the client. Yep. They create the plans. They create the process. 
until the next generation, I think it does come from the next generation coming up, is going to be the ones who, we can't, we can only do 40 houses a year. Like that's our limit and there's no more people to hire. We got to find a better way. That's where the, the desire and the drive to grow bigger than Bozeman, Montana, where 90% of your business is, is going to drive the process to where we believe it can go. You got a pretty big landscape in front of you. Right. Well, I love travel. I love, I love a lot of the regions that we're going to, that we're focusing on. But, uh, I, you know, I do believe I, I one thing hundred percent would always say I'm only as good as the people. And we all, we all, I think it's yep. a famous saying. We're only as good as the people we surround ourselves by is we're constantly finding those people that want to think outside the box. They want to go a hundred miles an hour, just like us at all times, always be available evenings, weekends, like push, push, push hard. I can't be everywhere. Nick can't be everywhere. But the people that we're teaching who are learning this process that as we're, we're showing them, they can be. So we just keep adding in different regions the right players. And I believe this is going gonna, is gonna to take off. I, I thoroughly believe that any builder who sees this process is gives me one half an hour and lets us show us this process or gets on the website and looks at some of our videos and shows that how are we able to break ground on a $10 million build in three months when all the other architect firm, and it, and it looks like it's already built and you would, and it's as great as any architect has ever shown them, how are we able to do it in 90 days and it'd be so much easier to build than the plans they've been getting for the last 20 years? That has got to intrigue anyone. Like, it, we're not doing this with people in India. We're not, doing, nothing wrong with people in India, but we're not like outsourcing no, no. <laughs> it, right? We are doing it. It's just purely process. Just listen, see what we show you. In 30 minutes, we will prove to you why it's so much easier to do what we do. And yeah, 20 years from now, probably a lot of firms will be doing like that. That's my hope. It's not like we own this idea, but we're, I believe we're the first ones that are innovating it all into a single process and, and, and showing it in a, in a way that no one's seen it before. Okay, before before we wrap up, and we got probably, you know, five to ten minutes, whatever. I could talk to you forever, and now I want to come to Whitefish because I was thinking about this with Dan. I haven't seen him in, I mean, I've seen him, but not in Whitefish for probably a year and a half. What, tell me something that people don't know about, about Eric Payne. Like, what's one thing that they, if they knew about you, they'd be blown away? Hmm, that's a tough one. Probably... Most would be a, a cowboy at heart and a farm farm kid at heart. So I, I grew up on a on a dairy farm slash horse farm. So my yeah. mom's an American, an enrolled American Indian on the Standing Rock Reservation in South Dakota. My dad actually met her in Washington State. She was living over there when he met her right out of the military. IBM. They said stood for I've been moved back in those days. So he moved a little Indian girl. To the East Coast, it's a very strange story that kind of tied to those times. But uh, I grew up as much as I love this stuff. Like everyone sees me in the office on Zoom calls, and I love technology-driven business. I'm still. I love to go home and hop on the horses. Rope. I love roping. I team rope. I nearly retired very young just so I could go team rope. I really like that. And I've got a seven-year-old daughter who 
I'm instilling that same love and passion for horses and and uh, or anything horse sport related. We love that. And then I absolutely love kids. I got a, I got a 30 year old son who I thought was I was done with kids. I have a seven year old daughter now. It's the most fun I've ever had. So wow. those are those are two things. I'm I'm pretty humble on that side of things with her. She she runs the show. And she comes in the office all the time, and she's part of everything we do and been at, met every client and been in a thousand meetings already, and she's not even set, uh, past seven. But, yeah, those, those would be probably the two main things. Okay, so there's a guy in, in Big Sky. His name's Jamie Patterson. He owns PRG. Jamie is, A, he's a great dude, builds an incredible product, does a lot of the stuff, most of the stuff at the Yellowstone Club. But more importantly... He and his two boys, and I think they're 23 and 21, but they are ropers. And they, they've they got 80 acres in basically the, the uh, four corners, but they go to Wickenburg. They go to, to Vegas to the uh, bull riding championship every year. I got to hook you up with Jamie. He is he's one of my favorite people in Bozeman. He's just a great dude who follows through. He's anal about following through on getting stuff done. I love it. I love Wickenburg. I had a place down there for a couple of years, roped a lot there. Vegas, all those ropings. Went, had a place rented in Four Corners and went down there, roped with Tyler Magnus, which one of the greatest champions of the roping world for 20, 20 years. Love that whole world. I tell you, the only reason I'm probably haven't re, didn't retire when I sold a, a, my construction company in 2013. And just did it for roping. Like, I absolutely loved it. And I really, you know, it, it never taken any time in my entire career to relax. I was like, I'm going to take a couple of years. I'm going to rope. Only thing that made me stop and get back into this is my daughter. So she came along 2016, you know, was born. And I was like, I can't. I don't want my daughter to grow up in, in, riding around to arenas in my horse trailer in uh dating cowboys so i'm gonna i'm gonna start building again you don't want her dating cowboys why not <laughs> well she could end up with rip <laughs> yeah I, I have higher aspirations for her but <laughs> rip's not a bad dude he gets stuff done i do like rip not as a son-in-law but i think he, he, he's a character. <laughs> well you probably don't want beth as a daughter either no, I mean, I, it's a great show and we love it. We all love it. It's the greatest marketing tool Montana has ever seen. It, it's, it's been good. Okay, I can't, I can't give up this call without asking about a, a big failure in your life. And I have no idea what this is, but I love this question because I am so anal that we learn more from failures than successes. And those are the stories we tell our kids and the, the people that we care the most about. What's a, what's a big failure and, and what do you think about it today and how does it drive you forward? Yeah, that's a good one. And I, I mean, I've, I've often, I've read a lot of books about most successful guys of, of each generation. And I feel like everyone's faced a failure of, at some point and a big one. One of the venture capitalists that we've done a lot of work for who I'm, I'm very good friends with too, to, told me in passing, it wasn't anything specifically applied to me or, or anyone, but it was about these companies that they, they fund and what they're usually looking for in a CEO or a founder to run these companies once they invest in them to take them to the next level is someone who has failed in like bad in a, in a terrible situation that they've came back from 
And then that person is driven to succeed even harder because of their failure. And generally that person who's failed appreciates success even more because they, they face failure. I think when, when we, we elaborated on a little bit earlier about the, when the tech sector radically changed in 2000.com bubble, right? Yeah, I mean, it was rough. I had just gotten out of the hardware in, in the networking industry because Microsoft was wrecking our margins and everyone could come out and play with Microsoft Windows and do anything they wanted. And it gotten into a dot-com and partnered with a company, a friend of mine, and we created a, a marketing company that became a dot-com portal. And I used all my experience with Oracle and, and networking and everything to create this instant presence on the internet in 2000 when the internet was blowing up. And as fast as the tech sector got crushed in 99 when Y2K hit, if we all can remember in 01, the, inter, the whole dot-com bubble burst of Yahoo went from $350 a share to $1.50 overnight, and these supposed profit margins that everybody thought were coming were not there. And it wrecked me financially. I didn't lose it all. But I lost all of it for a week and, and had to figure out how to come back from it. But it was a great lesson. And I still look at every invoice that comes in the door. I want to make sure we're watching every penny for all our clients as if it was the last dollar. Because I remember that day when I found out that it was all gone and the, and the investor pulled the plug because we had a dot com behind our name. So I don't ever want and the other lesson of that is I don't ever want to be in a situation of building something that's so reliant on any one thing like that. So we, you know, we're very diverse right now, commercial, residential, the, the sector that we're in, I believe, can weather almost any storm because there's always going to be construction. So I've really adapted to it. I appreciate it. It's one of the best things probably ever happened to me. I wouldn't be here if that hadn't happened. And I'm, I am a believer too that we, we learn our greatest lessons from our failures. Last question. Where do you see yourself and the building industry 10 years from now? I'm going to see the West, I mean, specifically Montana, I see exploding uh, far more than what we already have. I think we've just seen the tip of the iceberg. I, we definitely want to have more uh, regional locations in Montana for paying coal. Uh, but I see the whole West continuing this kind of migration that we've seen since COVID continuing. It's kind of changed our society. We're going to continue to grow with it. I believe the luxury industry is going to continue as we've seen in the last three years, especially, but really in the last six years, we opened up your magazine uh, from today to five years ago, luxury everywhere. Now it was, yeah. oh, that's a great place being built in Sun Valley. Everyone heard about it. Now there's 50 of those being built. Yeah. That sector is nowhere to go but up. And we're, we're, we're definitely going to be part of that growth. Do you, do you think we will continue to see the migration away from chaotic places to places like you mentioned Sun Valley? Sun Valley's going crazy, Eric. Park City with the with the new expansion of Salt Lake Airport is berserk because you can go anywhere in the world from Salt Lake. I mean, I just look at the West and I go, man, it's it's electric. Yeah, I I, agree. I think it's going to continue. I believe. I, I clients ask us all this time, why? How are you guys staying so busy? Like Vegas is softened, or Phoenix is softening, and this part of the country is softening. <clears throat> Unless they stabilize things, which they're not doing, 
we're going to continue, the West is going to continue to be the destination to go to. It's not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out the most important thing for every family is stability. They yeah. want stability for their family. The West offers them stability, not New York City. And I'm not saying there's not great things about New York. There are. But people want their kids to be safe going to school. They yeah. want their kids to be taught things that they were taught. And until there's a radical change in that, but I think our society has changed as a whole. There's population is, has continued to explode. The West is the natural place to migrate. It's the most room to grow. I, I have a I have another opinion on that, and that is that the West, because there's so much more accessibility to nature, nature humbles you, and it gives you time to think about what's important. And all the window dressing is not important, but being grounded is very important. I, I love that. I, I agree with you. Nature changes all of us, brings us all back down to our... Yeah. Eric, I'm glad we got this sorted out today. Yeah. <laughs> Good. That was fun. This was great. So thanks for your time, and we're excited to uh, to work with you. I love your your modeling idea, and I've got your cell number. Dan sent it to me. I'm going to introduce you to Jamie. You really should know this guy. Yeah, I'd love to. That'd be set us up. We we'll, uh, we'll talk roping first, and then building next. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Thanks for your time, and until next time, I'm Ted Bainbridge. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Ted. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can find everything discussed in this episode and more in our show notes below. I'm Ted Bainbridge, and you've been listening to Friends of Build Magazine podcasts.